that, you know, my desire is often to act. Like, how yeah. do we do something? Yeah. What's the intervention we need to make? How do we build bridges, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I actually feel like one of the most important things to be doing in the world right now is listening, you know, and like building our capacity to listen. Could we illuminate what's happening? The tendency that we are seeing, this tendency to retreat beyond saying, yes, it's it's natural and it's human nature and all those things. Like, can we actually begin, begin to illuminate for people how and why that happens so that maybe they can choose another way. And part of the reason I asked that is because I feel like we're just getting tricked by the same things over and over and over. We're just getting tricked time and time again. Hello, you're listening to Find the Outside the Podcast. I'm Tim Merry. And I'm Tuesday Ryanhart. And this week on the podcast, we are talking about polarities. The great schisms that exist in our societies, (laughs) our organizations, our communities, and ultimately inside ourselves as well. And how Mm. we walk across them, navigate them, live in the middle of them. That's our topic for today. Have you got any polarities uh, Tuesday that you're working with? You know, it's fun. It's uh, it's quite interesting that you ask that because, of course, we don't exactly talk about what we're going to say in the intro in that way. And uh, but as you said it, I was like, oh, I actually I tend to be a person who really likes like this and that even when they're Mm -hmm. like, you know what I mean? Like when they're seemingly opposites and um, and it's just very true around like my whole personality. And I've always attributed that to being a biracial person, right? Like, Mm. so in some ways, like my kind of like my essence is a polarity, like at least in North America, right? The discourse on race still primarily is pretty binary, still kind of black and white. And so if you are a black and a white person, you kind of live inside that polarity all of your life. So yeah, this week I've been living that, you know, just like for the past 44 years, but Mm -hmm. you know, not, not, I don't know that there are any polarities that I'm feeling especially in um, this week, but I think part of the reason we wanted to bring this into the podcast is uh, the, the political climate in every place we're working in the US, in Canada, in Sweden, in, yeah. you know, in like every place we're working, we are in these political contexts that people are not getting closer together. They seem actually to be pulling farther apart. Right. And so that's the that's kind of the water we're swimming in right now. And so to just talk about building relationship for results and things like that without with ignoring this kind of larger political context and moment we're in just felt not right. And like, we should just chat about it a little bit here. So what do you got, so, Tim? Well, let's just dig into that bit because I think there's a few things going on. So I think, you know, as we often say, like the world's becoming more unpredictable, it's becoming more uncertain, the speed of change is incredibly rapid, information saturation, economic, social, environmental uncertainty, right? So yeah. in that context, I think it's quite easy to want to duck for cover. I do. I feel like, yeah. you know, and, and, it's, and it's quite easy to want a simple answer. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's like, all right. So, I, you know, in us, when I look at the world or I look at what's happening in my region or my country or in my community, and it feels actually significantly beyond my control, I think it's an understandable response to want to move into the little part of the world that you can control yeah. and save it and protect it and hunker down. Right. Yeah. And I also yep. think it's really easy to be like, there's got to be a simple answer to this. 
you know mm. and it's like okay so like the politics of simple answers of popularism is becoming increasingly uh available to people becoming increasingly attractive to people out there right. so i think that's another huge piece of of this is like oh someone's going to sort this out and i think we've all been raised on this idea that someone was going to save the day you know yes we've been raised yeah. on this idea that if we just elect the right person if we bring in the right hero it's going to be mm-hmm. sorted but the nature of the circumstances the great uncertainty of these times means that there's no way that's true so so i feel like the i feel like the polar the polarizing of our societies and our communities is absolutely a result of the times we're in but it feels to me like a highly ineffectual way to actually deal with that reality right? Yeah. It doesn't seem like, it seems to me like the only way we're going to be able to respond to that kind of circumstance, right? Whether it's the hypersexualization of young women, right? Mm-hmm. Or whether it's like who's in political power, right? Or whether, I mean, there's just so yeah. much happening that's overwhelming. The, the, the idea that we're going to be able to solve that by like sinking into our little silos and our little uh, uh, kind of like turf protected areas uh, seems ludicrous to me. Really the only way we're going to be able to kind of navigate these problems that are so pervasive by reaching out to each other to figure them out. Well, and as you say that, because I am 100% in agreement, I was thinking as you were talking like, yeah, and our brain, like there is a part of our brain that's like no retreat, Yeah, right? Just hunker down for survival. So it's not only like, it's like, it's in some ways we're fighting nature, right? By like kind of expanding and opening and reaching out is actually in some ways going against our very nature or the way that our brains have developed kind of as they've evolved. So there's something for me around, and we had this conversation actually with one of our, one of our uh, big clients a few weeks ago, and we're saying, there's got to be, you know, there are studies where, where we find out what is the psychology of football, folks voting against their own best interests, right? right? There's some psychology there where whereby you have a thought pattern that says, I'd rather go for this than what actually might serve me, right? Or in some way, I choose to believe that this will serve me. And so I was just thinking about, as you were talking about turning to each other, I was like, yeah, and this moment probably calls for like neuroscientists and uh, psychologists and sociologists and um and uh, facilitators and politicians, like to actually figure out like what is the way, like what what are the different pieces, these expert and marketers and communicators, right? Like what is the way that these different people can bring what they know about human beings and human behavior to bear into something bigger, right? Because right? it's almost like they all must have a piece. Neuroscientists must have a piece. They can tell us how our amygdala make puts us into his, um, <laughs> a trauma response, right? Like they've got a piece and psychologists or behaviorists can tell us why we behave in this way. And, you know, marketers can say like, and this is why, why languaging and messaging works. It just feels like this is the time when all of these things we know and understand need to kind of like put in their piece, uh, so that we can come together a little bit more. Yeah. Could we illuminate what's happening? the tendency that we are seeing, this tendency to retreat beyond saying, yes, it's it's natural and it's human nature and all those things. Like, can we actually begin, begin to illuminate for people how and why that happens so that maybe they can choose another way? And part of the reason I asked that is because I feel like we're just getting tricked by the same things over and over mm. and over. We're just getting tricked mm. time and time mm. again, like the easy fear-based messages, right, that, are, that divide and conquer mm right? People who might be more natural allies or have some natural 
not even natural allies, but just have some natural interests, mm. some shared interests together, right? Like that is being so effectively blocked by simple, compelling, fear-based messages. And it's happening across the world. And it's like, we're not friggin' learning no. from it, right? Like you do it here and then you just move here and you do it there and then you just move here and you move it there. Like we're not, human beings are great at learning and we are not learning from this. Right, and I just feel like often these things get simplified down to like yes or no. Right. Yeah. Um, and we, I know we've touched on this before, but if you look at what happened with Brexit, like it's a yes or no. Right. And like, yeah. and that's like a highly nuanced, highly complex issue. Right. 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 And, and it came down to like a yes or no vote. Right. You know, yeah. and I feel like often like highly complex issues, highly nuanced yeah. conversations get simplified down to yes or no. To are you mm -hmm. in or are you out? You know, yeah. and like, and like, yeah. and, and I don't think any of the issues we're dealing with really at these times can be like, are, are, are that yes or no? They're like, okay, we yeah. have to figure this out. You know, but yeah. as soon as we take sides, as soon as we become entrenched in one particular viewpoint, what we do is we undermine our ability to figure it out. And if there's one thing we right. need to do now in the face of economic crisis, environmental crisis, social, right, social uprising, like in, in, is, is like turn to each other and figure things out. Right. Right. But the right. very stances that seem to be taking place kind of in the US, in the UK, in Europe, like you look at the voting that yeah. took place in Austria, or the voting that's taken place in Sweden, or the voting that's taken place in France, like you're, you're seeing like highly polarized societies, highly polarized places. And, uh, and so I, I feel like there's a big piece of me that's just like, what are we doing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the opposite of what we need to be doing right now to actually overcome the very challenges that we think we're voting to overcome, whether that be immigration, you know, mm -hmm. whether that be the economy, whether that be like we're not going to solve these problems by taking sides. Right. Right. We're going to solve these problems by knocking heads together. Right. And uh, and so. It's, it, it is. I mean, it's going where you were going, which is like what you know, we seem to be consistently. Uh, and our leaders actually seem yes. to be consistently driving us towards uh, decisions that undermine our ability to effectively respond, yeah. right? And that seems to be something that's embedded in political leadership yes, as well. For sure. I was thinking about uh, years ago, uh, John Kerry ran for uh, president and um, he lost and he was kind of a joke, right? In, so in some ways, he was kind of perceived as a weak leader, as someone who didn't kind of uh, oh, get, I remember. Yeah, get yeah. how you, one could lead. And I read an interview um, with his wife and it had been their second marriage. I mean, they, they married as full on adults, right? It was a person who could see her husband, right? It wasn't. Mm. Uh, and she said, um, he is a brilliant and complex man and he and he will refuse to give you simple answers. And so mm -hmm. like that is so and and you could just see how his refusal and I think because of his deep understanding of complexity, like his refusal to give the simple answers then made him politically unviable, right? right. Do you know, like that. And so so it's not only that our politicians are leading. I mean, I think it's just a two-way street. I think our politicians are leading us in this way. And I think we're demanding that of our politicians. I think we're demanding they give us simple answers because that's where, right. our, vote, it's that, where our vote will go. It's that old hero coming to save the day thing that we referenced earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Like someone just sort it out. I elected you to sort it out. Yeah. Right. This whole idea that democracy is something where you elect someone to solve it for you right. rather than something you participate in. It's like that Billy Bragg story that I tell, you know, where like Billy Bragg's playing, he, he's playing a gig up in Halifax and, uh, 
and he's on he's on the stage and he, he and he puts the lights up on the audience and he's like put your hands up if you want to hear a carpenter's song and then he put put your hands up if you want to hear a Bob Dylan song and the, the carpenter's song won you know and mm. so he starts playing the carpenter's song and then at the chorus he stops playing the guitar and like uh you know stops singing expecting the whole audience to be singing along you know yeah. and there was like dead silence in the room and he's and it was hilarious because he's like what you think democracy is something you just get to vote and do nothing absolutely <laughs> not <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then he went on and played the Bob Dylan song, and uh, and nice. and so I think there's something about there. There's somehow this idea that if we elect the right leader, you yeah. know, that they're going to somehow sort it. Or even if we have the wrong leader in place, at least we've got someone to blame. Like Theresa May, you know. Mm. For I'm not saying she's a fantastically compelling and incredible leader, but like she's just getting absolutely torn to pieces in the face of like. An impossible challenge. Yeah. Right? Navigating us out of the European. I mean, I don't even know what it means to not be European. Right. Like I, I the idea of a British identity that doesn't include being European makes absolutely no sense to me. Right. Mm. I grew up I grew up as a European. I lived in France. I lived in France. I lived in Germany. I traveled to Spain. I spent five years in the Netherlands. I mean, I spent yeah. you know three years in Germany, a year in France. I mean, like I don't have an identity of being British separate to yeah. um, separate to Europe. And so there's, you know, the idea that she that she's going to be able to like somehow navigate us out of that. And if she can't do a great job, she's a failure. I mean, like right. we're setting our leaders up to fail. I feel like we're, it's not just the fault of our yeah. elected officials to get good results. It's actually the expectations that we have of them that they're going to somehow sort it out aren't real. Like the whole system's set up That's um, right. to fail. I feel like we are... Forcing and reinforcing lowest common denominator response, right? Mm -hmm. like that thing that just simplest, easiest, perhaps the most um, catastrophic, but simple and easy, right? Mm. And then, and then we're requiring our leaders to go there, right? And and I'm not saying like certainly, I believe the president of my country uh, wants to go there. I don't think we're leading him anywhere, right? I think that he's, you know what I mean? I think he's uh, exploiting and uh, responding to, um, but I think it is probably of his nature to be that way, which I don't know that, I don't know, Theresa May, I can't say that, but what I'm saying right. at this at this point in my country, we have so asked for that, that we have a leader who's not, I don't think just responding to that, but is actually, that is kind of a, is who he is in his essence. And so that's where he's driving us because I think he probably like believes in it. I don't think, and with that, with that particular leader, it's necessarily being forced. Yeah. No, he's driving it. He's driving it. Yeah, is what you're saying. That's right. It's interesting how Canada, where I live now, has become like the uh, like like the the bastion of like the liberal world. You know. It's, wow. It's like this actually How's some that kind feel? of there seems to be some. It feels great. I'm not going to lie. Like I'm like, oh yeah, glad I moved here. Saw this coming. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's quite remarkable to be in Canada at the moment and you know have friends in Europe and then be like, wow, things actually seem somewhat stable there. There seems mm. to be somewhat some level of solidity to like progressive sane government, you know, um, uh, you know, especially with a next door neighbor as volatile and as vocal and as aggressive these, as the United yeah. States is right now. I mean, yeah. we're in the middle of NAFTA negotiations, you know, and, and, um, and the kind of accusations yep. that Trump's throwing across the border at, uh, at the prime 
minister here, Justin Trudeau, you know, and I, and I feel like he's generally dealing with them with a lot of dignity. And I'm like, all right, thank goodness. You know, and there's yeah. something about those kind of responses that, um, you know, feel good. And I, in general, though, I feel when I look at the leadership um, and on a on, on a national and international level, I think there's a, there's a real dearth, a real lack of um, uh, statespeople. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. You know, people who are standing up, who are powerful orators, who can create a vision right. that moves people, who can touch people's hearts, who can like, you know, where is the where is the compelling unifying voice here? You know, where is the person that can stand up in the face of, uh, you know, so much insanity and and kind of like create some level of rallying cry for, for people to gather around that has some sanity underneath it? What do you think that lack is about, Tim? Um, I think that politics now has become like a dirty job in a lot of ways. I think a lot mm. of the most highest caliber, most inspirational leaders are going into the kind of nonprofit world or the corporate world. I think, I think the nature of being a politician is that you're just like shredded all the time as, a, yeah. as it relates to social media. I mean, all of those things. I mean, I don't think it's a particularly attractive proposition. I mean, right. people approach me here to be on town council or to get involved as approached to get involved in provincial politics. And it's like, no, thanks. No, nope. yeah, not what I want to do, you know? Um, and so I, so I think, I think there's something about that, you know? And, and again, I think the system isn't set up to welcome nuance. The system right. isn't set up to welcome someone who's like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. that's like, I feel like when I first, when Obama first got voted in, like his message was around dialogue across the divide. Yeah. Right. I remember hearing him speak and being like, here is someone I could get behind. Like, you know, I felt yeah. like incredible. And then he got into that system and it's just not set up. It wasn't set up for him to be able to follow through on his record uh, in a lot of ways. Right? No, no. Do you know, do you remember, we also had the, the same conversation with the same client, which I know is, is, well, I mean, I guess it goes to how we're polarizing a little bit, but it just, I asked the question to you all, we were talking about this lack of states people. And, uh, and I asked the question, would Obama have been more successful in Canada, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, he was stopped here at every point. I mean, this the, the mm -hmm. insidious racism here is such that, I mean, I, there was n mm -hmm. not only was, are we structured not to allow him to follow through on his rhetoric? I mean, we are structured such that he could not follow through on his rhetoric, right? Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, very personally and very specifically. Um, and I asked if you all thought he would have been more successful in Canada. And you were like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. I mean, not to say that Canada doesn't have racism. I'm certainly not suggesting that. But the amount of uh, deep, pervasive, insidious, um, completely blocking racism he experienced as our president a lot, did not allow that to happen here not much of what he wanted to happen here i think I not that he was this... perfect but no 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 and uh, that's also an unreal expectation eh? but like yeah. uh <laughs> so, good point uh, right yeah fair enough and uh, but i <laughs> i also like I've, I've always had i've had this idea for years that um actually the the united states is ahead of many other countries in terms of dealing with issues of race because yeah. of how polar and bizarrely because of how polarized mm -hmm. things are and how overt the conversation has been for so long yeah i feel mm -hmm. that i feel like i feel like there's a very sophisticated um 
uh, analysis and a very robust dialogue that takes place in the United States yeah. that isn't taking place in in Canada and isn't taking place in many parts of Europe. Um, right. uh, and it's a lot more undercover and it's not talked about and 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 it's just beginning to be acknowledged. And of course, acknowledging things don't doesn't change them. And, right. But like, and so I just think I, I actually think in 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 some ways it's the, it's the it's the nature of the aggressive conversation that is U.S. culture, you know, that has like mm-hmm. forced the conversations around race to become Absolutely. so sophisticated there, you know. So, does yeah. that make, do you feel that? Absolutely. Uh, oh, a- absolutely. I feel like we have done amazingly hard work to look at race in this country, not as a country because not everyone is, but there's been there have been for years people who have been pushing us mm. to understand and work mm. with and so i think so i want to be really clear that um there's nothing about the insidious deep-seated pervasive uh uh racism that obama faced that i think ref- reflects a lack of work done in this country mm-hmm. right i mean and i think that there's been huge and incredible work done and in fact in some ways um i th- i think if if i if you want me to put on my pollyanna hat and i'll just put that on gladly right now i mean i think in some ways what we're seeing is the death throes of that system but mm-hmm. it's but death throes of systems happen over decades they don't actually right. happen like the system isn't just like turned off tomorrow no. and so i think his being elected was a signal of the death of that system and so then it just you know like death rows are ugly they re-rear i think Don- i think donald trump is a direct result of having obama in for eight years right and so i think that there there is a sophisticated and advanced um conversation around race in the u.s i don't think it's so i just like want to uh, full-on affirm that uh especially as we go to other places together and i'm like oh Sometimes I forget how much mm-hmm. we talk about it here and how much we think about it here. And, and how, how much, much it's, part you know. of the common discourse it is, whether you're right. on a sports radio show or a chat show or whether you're in a political right. conversation or, in, you know, like it's just it's just part of the discourse. You can't. I mean, it's, yeah, you, know. you, you have to here. You, yeah. you just have to here yeah. or you're going to be irrelevant. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that. um while I think we're on the leading edge, it doesn't mean like we don't have huge amounts to learn and huge amounts to figure out and huge places that we're stuck in right. that discourse as di- well. Right. And so. Yeah. And the conversation in Europe, at least as we're experiencing it with our clients and among my friends, is about the rise of fascism. Right. And right. as a and as a reflection back to the, the Second World War, you know, where, you know, a good friend of ours has talked about, you know, his father fighting in the resistance, you know, and he can't believe that he is seeing the rise of fascism again within his lifetime. You know, and and yeah. and, and a similar thing with our Swedish clients, you know, they're talking about yeah. the rise of fascism within their um, with, within their country. And I think we've seen that in France. We've seen that in Austria. We've seen that in many different places. And so I think that's one of the you know that I, I think they're actually quite similar conversations or like on a yeah. on a root level you know in terms of mm-hmm. like the polarization within our society but mm-hmm. there's a different there's a different focus to them and I, you know what this polarization really points me to is a is a is, is a is a sense that we're we're just not listening to each other mm. right that that like our capacity to listen like the more polarized we become the more that is an indicator of me that we're just not listening anymore because if you would if you were listening to each other right like if we were able to listen to each other we'd be becoming less polarized we'd be taking into a a points of view that are beyond our own and i know that's a lot to do with the social media echo chamber etc etc and and but i just think there's something quite powerful 
about um, uh, actually needing to focus on our ability to listen. Because I think when you look at circumstances like this and you look at increased polarization, you know, my desire is often to act. Like, how yeah. do we do something? What's yeah. the intervention we need to make? How do we begin? How do we build bridges? You know, mm-hmm. and, and and I actually feel like one of the most important things to be doing in the world right now is listening. You know, and like building our capacity to listen. And I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. And I think just to bring it back to our work specifically, I think that that's why. Um, dialogue, yes, but like specific things like listening exercises are incredibly important because actually listening is a skill, right? Yeah. It's not something, I mean, yes, we, we're, we're, many of us are born hearing and so we know how to hear um, and, and, and listen at a surface level, but this idea of actually listening, um, listening to understand the other person or listening to see really see the other person i feel like that's a skill it's not just something like you just pop out with like that takes some real intention and it makes a real difference and so that's why you know i almost always insist when we have a couple days with people that we do a particular listening exercise because it just shifts everything it does Mm -hmm. it does does there's there's some quote somewhere that it's hard to hate somebody if you know their story or something like yeah. that. I mean, again, why, why am I so bad at quoting things on this show? Have you noticed? I'm generally like, there's some quote from someone somewhere that I'm going to quote really badly that goes something like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> anyway. I like I'm going to take us. I'm going to take us into a poem. I've actually really enjoyed this, and 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 uh, and and, uh, and this kind of like back and forth. And I and I hope that at least what these conversations do with people we're listening to is provoke you to have some of these thoughts and have some of these conversations and and uh, and 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 like keep 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 listening. And my poem, which I'm going to throw at you, is called mm-hmm. "The Listener." But do you want to do you want to introduce a song before I do the poem? Yeah, why don't I do that? And so I have to say, as we were thinking about this particular topic for the podcast, the only song that kept coming to me was um, Come Together. And I know it was a Beatles song, but in my heart, it's a Michael Jackson song. Oh. Right? So I really love his cover of it. It's just, um, it's kind of like him at his best. It's after, you know, kind of his really mega, 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 mega popular heyday. But I always just thought, like, he did that song really beautifully and of course it's all about coming together primal scream do a wicked song called come together as well is that right i mean yeah it's been a calling for a long time hasn't it i mean like that's what human beings do in crisis that's why we've survived as a species for so long we turn to each other we come together and we figure it out that's right and uh and and it's just what we're gonna have to do this time if we want to make it yep Right. Absolutely. All right. This is this is called the listener. This is another one of those poems I've loved all my life, mm. and uh, and uh, I've just loved it. And and I'm not going to analyze why, but I just do. It's by uh, Walter Delamar. It's called the Listeners, um, and uh, it's from uh, a kind of compilation of poems called Old Chestnuts Warmed Up by John mm. R. Murray. Um, anyway, here's it goes. The Listeners. Is anybody there? Said the traveller knocking on the moonlit door, and his horse in the silence chomped to the grasses of the forest's ferny floor. A bird flew up out of the turret above the traveller's head, and he smote upon the door again a second time. Is anybody there? he said. But no one descended to the traveller. No head from the leaf-fringed sill leaned over and looked into his grey eyes, where he stood, perplexed 
and still. But only a host of phantom listeners that dwelt in the lone house then stood listening in the quiet of the moonlight to that voice from the world of men, stood thronging the faint moonbeams on the dark stair that goes down the empty hall, hearkening in an air stirred and shaken by the lonely traveller's call. And he felt in his heart their strangeness, their stillness answering his cry, while his horse moved and cropped the dark turf neath the starred and leafy sky. For suddenly he smote on the floor even louder and lifted his head. Tell them I came and no one answered that I kept my word, he said. Never the least stir made the listeners, though every word he spake fell echoing through the shadowiness of the still house from the one man left awake. Aye, they heard his foot upon the stirrup and the sound of iron on stone and how the silence urged softly backward when the plunging hooves were gone. There you go. Thanks, Tim. Mm -hmm. That was fantastic. So that's it for this episode of Find the Outside, the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Tell your friends. New episodes of the podcast are available every second Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us about something you heard on the show, you can reach us at podcast at findtheoutside.com. All the resources, poems, books, songs, etc. we mentioned during the show are in the show notes of the episode over at findtheoutside.com backslash the podcast or in the description of the podcast in whatever app you're listening to us on. You can also find the song we played in today's show and every song we've ever played on previous shows uh, at Spotify. Just go to Spotify and search Find the Outside on Spotify playlists or you can go to findtheoutside.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Coffin at Sound Good Studio. The theme music for the Find the Outside, the podcast is by Gary Blakemore. See you next time. <laughs>